I want to um, open our presentation, um, which is looking at, the, at this um, one aspect of an extremely complicated um, area, um, as I'm sure you're aware. What, I'll just crack straight on, because what we, Martin and I want to focus on is very particular today, and that's the, the concept of space. And we're going to relate that um, to a research project that we, um, a two-year research project that we just finished recently. <coughs> well, not so recently, actually. Last year. That was a just-funded project. And in a minute, I'll tweet the link to the web page and all the rest of it, because I forgot to put it on the presentation. But before we do that, I want to, before we move on to the data, one of the things that we want to argue, which I'm sure you're very familiar with already, and I think this links in with um, some of the points that Dave's just been making, is some kind of theoretical framing around the concept of space itself. <coughs> and I'm drawing on um, the work of Dorian Massey, who I'm sure you're um, familiar with already. And I think this is something that it's worth saying, even though it's kind of obvious, that space is... Um, we would argue it's a part of social construction. It's not a, a kind of um, neutral um, backcloth to social action, uh, and the social is um, spatially constructed. And we're talking. We're going to be talking about this <coughs> in terms of the relationships between the digital and the material, in particular. Um, and we're using space quite loosely here. Um, also, as uh, Massey argues, space isn't is not static, but it's dynamic, and it's always being reconstituted by changing social relations, and we're hoping to illustrate this today with some of our data. <coughs> it's also, as um, Massey argues, implicated in power symbolism and what she calls the power geometry of space. But I think one of the, the point that's most interesting for us today, for our, our own project, is this notion of the simultaneous multiplicity of spaces, cross-cutting, intersecting, aligning with one another, and existing relations of paradox or antagonism. And we're going to try to relate that to um, socio-material um, perspectives and actor network theory in relation to our data. Another um, quote that we want to bring in from Massey, much more recent work, I'll just give you a minute to read that. Uh, I think what I find quite helpful about this is that <coughs> I think it even more strongly underscores this notion of, of um, the contingent and the emergent in terms of space. And this is something that um, we saw very strongly in, in our data, in particular the way that, stu that students constructed, maintained and, and curated networks of um, digital and material spaces to, <coughs> to bring about the kind of study practices that they were engaged in. So I think I'm handing over to Martin now. Do you want this? Uh, it's fine. I'll stay over here. And I'll see you. As soon as we talk about space, I'll occupy <laughs> okay, Actually, can I go mine? So one of the things I wanted to do um, is, is start to link this out to some of the quite pragmatic concerns around space, which do get talked about. Um, so this is taken from a recent document um, produced by the Higher Education Academy. And I think it's useful in that it, it, it characterises a kind of way of talking about space, which I, I see quite widely, and it does link to some of the conversations earlier about things like distance learning and so on. So technology offers a number of opportunities and challenges for higher education, enhancing existing provision and opening up new potential. And in here they list three things, pace, place and mode of learning. Place is concerned with the physical location, which may be work-based or at home, on public transport while commuting or abroad when travelling. And then it talks about learning and technology in terms of degrees of freedom. And what I want to draw out from this is this sense that place in some ways is therefore framed as a problem. Place is something which has to be escaped from in order to open up opportunities for participation. And I think that's a really important point as a departure for this, because as we'll, you'll see as we go on, that, that's not how, it, how students have to experience space and place, and they, they try and do their studies. But I think that is quite, um, you know, this is something from 98, talking about flexibility in terms of course design, and 
sort of 19 different dimensions of flexibility. And you can see actually a lot of it is not about space or place at all. That's almost absent from it, except it does come in a bit down here under course delivery um, in terms of places for study course part participation. It's just in there almost as a note. And you can see sort of in terms of wider things about it, again, it sort of links to this idea of universities, their function being disaggregated. And, um, you know, the University of London, 1836, setting up as a distance provider and accreditation body and leaving the problem of space to students. You know, this, this is not actually a new problem. This is something which is quite well established. But it does start to raise questions about how space and place is drawn into these different functions. You know, in what ways is it just about course delivery? In what ways actually is it about other things, such as socialization or about student support? What are the spaces and places where those things happen, as well as getting stuff and learning stuff? As a contrast to that, I want to draw in this um, Crawford and Pollock drawing on Brown Duggard, but also sort of linking to sort of actor network theory and socio-materiality and such ideas. The campus is best thought of not simply as a constraint, but to borrow Brown Duggard's phrase, as a resourceful constraint. One it be premature to write off, which those developing distributed learning need to take seriously. The campus, or more generally, the co-location of learners, teachers, labs, classrooms, lecture theatres, libraries and so on, refuses to lie down and die. Those seeking to develop distributed education should understand the support campus setting gives the educational process and should be prepared for the necessity to find new ways of providing that support in a distributed education context. This idea of a resourceful constraint becomes increasingly important as we start to look more closely at students' work. Where we aren't giving it to them, they have to make their own. So, <coughs> as we were saying before, we're, we're not going to we'll crack through the theory and get onto the data, but just as um, in order to kind of situate this in terms of our, our assumptions and the, and the type of theoretical framing that we're using for the project, <coughs> we're drawing on um, what you could broadly call a socio-material perspective, which relates to actor network theory. Don't have time to give you any kind of like de perfect definition of that, but this is a quote which gives you a flavour of that perspective. That's Latour, I mean, and Bruno Latour, as you, you're no doubt aware, is one of the main proponents of this set of ideas. Um, and oversimplifying, um, no doubt, one of the, the, the key points that we've drawn on um, out of Latour's work is this notion that you can't separate um, the context from social action and you can't separate um, notions of space, surroundings, and um, devices and material artefacts from the social actors themselves, and, and we talk about non-human actors, which is quite an important part of our um, work. And hopefully this will come clear when we, we look at some of the data as well. But the notion of the network is very important here. The network, as we're using it, is not a network of individuals, but a network of um, artifacts and resources, um, which are in constant flux, basically, um, through this micro-enfolding of, of, of social action. Um, Tara Fenwick and colleagues up at Sterling. Um, Link this to education. So they're very they, they use the term assemblage a lot to think about um, these kind of <coughs> these constantly shifting um, networks of, of material, digital, human and non-human, which which provide 
and the, the means by which um, education can progress. And that's really where we're coming from with, it, with our work. And just the final quote um, from the point of view of theory um, from Catherine Hales. And Hales' <coughs> work um, draws on post-human theory. And one of the things she's very interested in is the notion of um, embodied virtuality. And she argues that we can't make any meaningful distinctions anymore. But a bit like but Dave's just been saying, between um, the, the material and the, the digital, and that it's all completely intertwined, basically. I mean, she's not say, we're not talking about a kind of robocop transhumanism, but it's a, a metaphor, a very powerful metaphor for, for what, how she sees um, social practice. Um, do you want that one? Oh God, that's me. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right, okay. Uh, it feels really weird to be doing this. Martin put this in. Yeah, it's my fault. Oh yeah, because you're doing the okay. next bit anyway. The point with this is it's, it's quite a, a neat illustration of one of these things. You know, the lecture, the lecture hall is the archetypal site of university study in all the stereotypes and caricatures of university life. But how the current practices in the lecture hall do a lot to, to make it messy, to make it complicated. So the VLE and its relationship to the lecture destabilizing the ontological status of the lecturer and the students. You know, enabling students to do you know, what they were saying, check Facebook if they're bored, go and Google to see if the lecturer is talking nonsense or not, but to refer out in various ways beyond the immediacy of the lecture. But also that there is this sort of the capturing of the, the previously quite ephemeral practices of, of teaching the lecture. You know, as we're being podcast now, these things are being taken out, stored somewhere, will be available to people afterwards. And it changes the experience of the setting changes the way people are relating to each other, changes the dynamics of the whole thing. The lecturer's voice becoming a voiceover to an increasingly visual spectacle, he said, pointing at the PowerPoint slides. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this repositioning of people, sites of authority and so on, the authorial moment, you know, is changing the way in which the lecture operates. I mean, you get a lot of people who put up the slide of the medieval lecture and say, look, it hasn't changed for so many centuries. And it's like, well, actually, no, I mean, it really is. And if you look in detail at what's going on, it really is in changing quite important ways. And part of this is about this reaching out, the, the permeability, the leaking out beyond, the digital saturation, the way in which there isn't just the face-to-face -face and the digital somewhere off over there, but these things are pervading each other. So as Leslie was saying, this draws on work undertaken as part of a two-year GIST-funded project. Have you tweeted the link to the... Oh, no, I didn't answer. Yeah. So we're going to be drawing primarily from the student research, which was done in the first year. Um, we worked with four groups of students. So we had, um, because of the Institute of Education, it's postgraduate, primarily postgraduate institution, we were focused on postgraduate students, PGCE students, taught masters, taught masters studying at a distance and doctoral students. So we did some focus groups with them, which we're not going to focus on in this particular talk. What we're going to look at is this longitudinal multimodal journey. So we gave a dozen students, three from each group, iPod touch devices. We sent them off over a period of between six and 12 months, depending on how quickly we got them back again. <laughs> and we did a series of interviews, either three or four interviews with each of them about aspects of their study practice. We got them using the iPod touches to take photos and videos and so on which they brought back to us and presented to us, and we then had conversations around those. <coughs> we'll also touch on some of the stuff from the staff equivalent project, which happened in the second year, only had four people in. This was a kind of 
we, we were focused on students, but people kept saying, but you should do the staff as well. So we tried to squeeze it in in the second year. So it's only four people. It was a smaller scale thing. We were actually using the, the visitors' residence maps as part of the stimulus of the interviews in that process. So it does tie back quite neatly to what was going on before in that aspect. Um, but what we're going to focus on in here is some of the mapping activities and some of the visual data that students were presenting to us. So yeah, 12 students, three from each group, distant students interviewed via Skype rather than face-to-face. -face. And the sequence of the interviews was starting off with a sort of history of what they've done with technology in their studies, and then moving through in increasing detail to look at specific aspects of their study practice. So what were they doing with the library, what were they doing when they produced essays, what, and so on. So drawing it down specifically to the title of the talk, the theme for today, I'm going to start by looking at these ideas of the post-constitutional spaces. We got people to draw maps of their studies. And you can see from here many of the points which have been raised already in terms of the sites of study. So we have institutions, we have the virtual learning environment off in the cloud somewhere, we have reading on the train, public transport being brought in as a site of study, people outdoors and so on. But what you'll start to see from this, and the figure running about between them, the arrows, is that it's not just about individual spaces self-contained in a list, it is about the relationships between them. <coughs> so to draw this out in a bit more detail, this is a sort of map, in a very sketchy kind of way, of what one particular student, they, we, they gave themselves the pseudonym, so the, this, this was Juan, we didn't pick the names for them. Um, <coughs> Juan was talking about the way in which he studied in libraries. And when he studied in libraries, he came bringing certain things. So he brought a folder which had notes in it. He brought pens and paper, post-it notes. and He was trying to work with texts. But he was gathering those texts. He came to the institute. He used our library. He was working at desks. He was using desktop computers. He got physical texts, but also electronic resources. But the trouble with the electronic resources is that it had to pay to print them out. And we only allowed single-sided printing. So the rest of his network that he was constructing to do his study involved going to another college where he used a girlfriend's password to get into a different desktop computer and connect to their network and print off those things on a double-sided way to save himself some money. So in terms of what his, the space he engineered for his study in the library actually encompassed what we might intuitively think of as two separate spaces separated by a sort of walk between two buildings. But for him it was all part of the same space of activity, the same space of practice which drew in all these things, some of which he brought, some of which we provided, some of which other people were providing. So this is sort of drawing directly on this idea of the heterogeneous engineering idea from that network theory, trying to see what different things, people, devices, artifacts and so on are being drawn in in order to get this practice established successfully. <coughs> the other thing that came out of these stories of failure so this was a photo one of our students, who was a PGCE student, brought along. When she talked in the interview about this, she was saying you know, the staff room was equipped with seven computers, but only one of them had a printer attached. So there were six students, and everyone wants to get the computer where you can use the printer, which was really important for printing out resources for the lessons they had to teach after the lunch break, for example. Eventually sort of worked around this by finding another printer in school, but six teachers tried to use the computer, and it's kind of a bit crowded. And when the school staff arrived and they wanted to use it, well, it seems like we're the invaders, the intruders. They had no legitimacy in that staff space because they were just visitors. So it wasn't, you know, in terms of ideas of digital literacy, it wasn't that she was incompetent at using printers. But the politics of the social situation meant that she was not able to do the printing that she needed to, to go and teach the lesson. 
So this is one of these things where the spaces, on the face of it, look perfectly adequate, but actually the practices in those spaces mean that the physical infrastructure just cannot be used in the way that she needed, and she had to find a workaround to get that, that working. The other thing was the interesting ways they talked about space, and there was this sort of, you know, the, the account of space just vanishing. So Django was talking about, you know, interesting how much you use the iPad for a start, everywhere and anywhere. I have the information there all the time, constantly. I, feel, I just feel as though I don't have to be anywhere physical at all anymore. So there was clearly this rhetoric about sort of spacelessness, about almost disembodiment. Other people talked about it in slightly different ways. I mean, it, it's clearly, you know, even in this one, the everywhere and anywhere does suggest a where does still imply a kind of space, even if they're trying to talk themselves out of it. Um, Yuki, whose, whose dates we'll come back to in a bit. So, you know, the most important thing for her was portability. She uses technology everywhere she goes. And so I use the PC room, the library, for searching for some data in journals. In the lecture room, I record the lectures and take memos and so on. And one of the things she did was, in terms of presenting us with data, she presented us with this slide, which combined a number of images which she characterizes her experience of being less bound by place. So again, in this sense, it's echoing back to those, those comments at the start about space as a problem to be escaped from. This gave her a sense of freedom that she can move beyond particular sites of study and do things in different places. But for other students, there's something very important about particular spaces. So this is Juan again. I'll only work at the computer, usually to the, the final part of the essay. I enjoy the image of being sort of in a dusty, wooden-shelled kind of old library where it's cosy and warm. I like that. That's part of the experience of studying that I enjoy. It's a very nostalgic image. It's a very romanticised image. But it was important for him. And he went on to talk about the other things which were about this sort of affective side of it, the emotional side of, of studying, which, which were quite profound for him. He presented us with this slide, which is the you know, areas around Bloomsbury, and he talked about the journey to the library. Can I just ask yeah. what age he was? I have no idea. These are all mature students. Oh, they're all mature students. Yeah, but we, I don't think we specifically asked them their ages, but they're, they're not 18 to 21 year olds. I've heard that from 18 year olds too. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure how much of this is about the age, but it is to do with a certain orientation to the study. It's a bit of a long quote, but I think I'll draw out a few bits. The Institute is in the centre of London. Where I live, you could be in a town sort of anywhere. Whereas when you come in here, you come over Waterloo Bridge, you see St Paul's, the Houses of Parliament, you know you're in London, you're doing something again, where people do important things. And there's a sense of, you know, it gives a sense of reality, puts it in a context of potentially important or more seriousness to it, it focuses, it focuses me a little bit. You know, the sense that you can't get on with this stuff at home. You know, he's talked about, he talks about, you know, no one ever, can't imagine anyone ever did anything important again insert town name here for reasons of anonymity. You know, but the sense that, that nothing important ever happened in his, his home proximity, but it does in central London. And this sense of travelling in, the sense of the, was a part of getting his head in the right space to be in the library and do studious things. You know, it goes on to talk about the impact of this on his ability to write. The writing style, I think, depends on the style of which is quite confrontational, not confrontational, but critique, you know, being you know, you say this, you have to have a strong opinion, you have to feel strongly in it and confidence in your opinion. I think that all comes from, you know, feeling that you're a part of it and that you're important and that what you're doing is important. And for him, part of that sense of being important is being at the heart of things. 
being at the heart of something intellectual. That's why he wanted <coughs> to do this stuff in the library. That's why he had this routine of travelling in, of noticing these monuments and stuff. It's part of his journey into being academic, not just to being in a library. Okay, so that's some of the stuff about characterising spaces. The other thing that I, we have in the title I wanted to talk a bit about is boundaries. So this was a map from one of the members of staff. We were getting to talk about where and when they did certain things. And this was a sort of blueprint of their home, a sort of sketch map of their journey to work and the office. And you know, there's various things we could say about this. You know, the smiley faces and sad faces tell a lot about the environment we provide people at our institute. But they had this environment at home where they had a desk in a dining room with a computer set up and resources around it. They had a sofa on which they worked with a laptop in the evening, and they took their, PDF, their PDFs on a um, like a Kindle device to bed with them. And there's a sense of increasing intimacy. You know, these intimate spaces that work normally wouldn't intrude into. But it was only certain kinds of work that were permitted into each of them. So, you know, email would happen at the desk and might happen on the sofa, but wouldn't happen in bed. But reading stuff might. And this was an image which Yuki provided for us. You know, the bathroom is a good place to read. And there's very little you can imagine that's more intimate, more personal. Than, you know, she would digitise these texts, put them on her iPad, put the iPad in a Ziploc bag, and read it in the bath. And you sort of have you know, this image of that being how someone wants to study, and that incredible intimacy, that, that very, very personal space, being where she felt most comfortable doing her study. That was an important part of her study practice for her. Now again, for other students, the experience was quite different. So coming back to Juan's stuff, he, was, he gave us this image and talked about establishing boundaries. So this was an image of uh, you know, the living room. He talked about containing the laptop in the corner of the sofa. And when he drew his map, you know, it's very faint on here, so I'll talk you through it. But it's striking that the university is right over at this end of the paper, and his home right over at this one. And just to emphasize it, he just drew this dotted line down the middle. But he really wanted to, to maintain this sense <coughs> of separation. Now, we, because this is about the physical and material, I mean, we, we focus on these examples, we did have people talking about the separation of different contexts, private life, professional life, study life, in terms of, say, the email accounts they used to apply for jobs, or where they would or wouldn't send emails from for particular purposes. But this in particular was about, you know, the, the, about working with texts, digital texts, physical texts, and where he wanted to be able to do that and where he didn't want them to intrude. He wanted to keep study out of his home life, so he had a place to go that he didn't study. He didn't have to study, he didn't think about study, so that he could escape from it. So for him, there was a real struggle. You know, Dave was saying earlier about the tendency for um, technology to bring things into different contexts, and he really felt that and was pushing back against it. To start wrapping these things up a bit, I mean, we're sort of feeling towards something which I think is we're still exploring how well this connects, but it's, it's suggestive of some of the ideas from Heidegger about dwelling, about the sense of being in places that reach out and, and bring other things in, that are about constructing connections. I mean, some of the, the sort of background to this is, you know, quite nostalgic, idealized, and in some senses, very ideologically dodgy. But there is something important about this thing about um, spaces and relationships between people and ways of being which is coming out from this kind of student data for us. Do you want to say anything more about that? 
No, that covers it. I mean, just the, the thing about the the um, the notion of the thingly structure of buildings. I mean, Heidegger was talking about quite specifically about architecture in, in that paper. But what we quite liked about that was was it did seem to carry that notion of of of, of um, the built environment. In, in this case, obviously non-digital being 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 endlessly remade yeah. by by the act of dwelling and, and, and building being something that's part of dwelling. And we're kind of working, trying to pull our way yeah. forward with this. But this sense of building being an active verb rather than just a physical environment. You know, exactly. It's something that people did rather than just something they, they lived in. And you want to... Yeah, I mean, you're kind of wrapping up, so we've got some time for questions. I mean, obviously we've done a bit of a whistle-stop um, of quite a few themes. Um, but hopefully you can see, and I hope this instantiates Massey's idea, and we, we feel it does, that space, as she says, is neither a container for always ready constitutes identities. And I think this does link quite closely to what Dave was just talking about, nor a completed closure of holism. There's a space for loose ends, of loose ends rather, and missing links. For the future to be open, space must be open to actually. And um, Massey's not talking particularly about the digital here, but I think this is very opposite for digital engagement. Another point I would say, a couple of points in conclusion, I think something that, that we're seeing in the data is, is a really complex interplay between notions of um, embodiment and disembodiment and the relationships between those concepts. But I think something that we, we take quite strongly from certainly um, post-human theory is the notion that, that there's, and I would argue, no such thing as, as disembodied practice. You know, there's always a material context even to the sort of prototypically um, strongly digital, supposedly disembodied practices. But I think what we saw in, in the data was, in some respects, uh, um, students <coughs> seeing disembodiment as a resource, but also situatedness being another element of the resources that they, would, they were drawing upon um, for identity work, um, particularly in the case of things like the, the, the symbolic value of some of these spaces for students. Although that there's that they're, um, Digital the engagement was largely digital. Very often, there was still a, a, an importance placed on the symbolic value of the material settings. So, just to wrap up, as kind of tentative conclusions, because we've just started really thinking about this analysis, haven't we? I mean, it's, it's something we've been sort of circling around for a while. We haven't written up that much or anything really on the space side yet. But one thing we'd argue, just to say more broadly, is looking at this area of of educational research, we, we would argue study is far too broad a category, obviously, that has to be a lot more fine-grained analysis of specific textual practices, and that's what we've tried to do um, with this um, with this particular data set. And again, that we would argue that this illustrates the, the contention that space isn't, um, and time, actually, that I would argue neither of those are backcloths, containers, or context to practice, but they're actually part of how practice is constituted. Things like pace, um, frequency, um, simultaneity, those kind of aspects of time are part of practice and, and also all these spatial um, networks of practice that we've seen in the data <coughs> um, should be seen as part of the co-constitution of practice. Um, so just to wrap up, I suppose what we're saying, again drawing on some of the, 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 the quotes that we gave earlier, is that space may be viewed, and we're talking about space in, in terms of the material and the digital, as um, contingent, emergent, endlessly constituted through what you could put a few ideas together, say there's a sort of unfolding of socio-material and post-human textual practice. So that's where we're going to leave it. So you. if you have any questions.